as a part of our service today. Um, we are in a verse-by-verse study of the book of Philippians. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and flip over to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 12 and 13 today. Now, I want to give you just a little bit of introduction here about these verses. They fit into a larger context of, uh, that starts back in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, where Paul talks about how we are all citizens of heaven. And then he goes from talking about how we're citizens of heaven to how we ought to live and treat one another. And he talks about how we're supposed to be... Um, uh, live lives that are humble service and put the needs of others ahead of our own and how Jesus modeled this in his own life and he spells that out there in chapter 2. And so at the beginning of verse 12, actually if you go ahead and bring that up, at the beginning of verse 12 it, there's a therefore. And one of my professors in college, one of my, my Bible professors always said, if there's a therefore you need to know what it's... There you go. And so that's kind of what it's there for, is it's connecting back to this larger body of content that Paul's been talking about. So he's basically saying here, therefore, in light of my exhortation for how you ought to live, therefore, in light of my telling you, look, you need to put the needs of other people ahead of your own, therefore, in light of how Jesus treated other people, press on. And that's my summary. He doesn't actually say press on, but that's my summary of what he says here in verses 12 and 13. So let's take a little deeper dive into that this morning. Uh, we're going to read verses 12 and 13. If you would stand to your feet for the reading from God's Word, Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we always stand out of respect and reverence for God's Word, but also be reminded, that, friends, that this is where truth comes from. In a world that's shifting and changing constantly all the time, this is something that we can build our lives on. This is something that is solid, stable, eternal, and God has given to us is his absolute truth unchanging. So let's read together from God's word, Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Y'all were a little quiet. Did I miss something there? Okay, that's two weeks in a row I messed up last week. I gave them the 1982 NIV version of the Bible, and I was reading from that, and they don't have that version back there on the computer. So we're, we're working the bugs out. Um, it's on me. Okay, well, these verses, Paul makes uh, very two clear points here in these verses. And so my outline today is really just two things. Um, Paul, first of all, says he's talking about human diligence. That is what's required of us. That's in verse 12. And then in verse 13, he talks about divine enablement. That is what God will do for us. So there's these two things going on. God says, this is what I want you to do, human diligence, your part in the matter. And then the other part is what God says he's going to do for us to enable that to happen. So divine enablement. So let's start with verse 12. Paul starts off verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, talking to the Philippians here, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. So here Paul recognizes that the Christians living in Philippi, that they have a heart for obedience, that they have a heart to follow after God, that they have an impulse, an instinct within them that says, you know, what God's calling me to do, I want to pursue that. I want to follow that with my life. And so Paul's recognizing that here in them. He's saying, hey, look, you have this heart for obedience, not just when I'm there, but also now in my absence as well. Verse 12, he says, I want, here's what I want you to do. I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, when Christians read this verse, if you've read through the Bible or if you've listened to some sermons, you may, have think, you may kind of cringe when you hear Paul say that. It might make you a little bit nervous. Well, what's Paul talking about here? Is he saying that we're supposed to go uh, you know, work for our salvation, like we have to work to obtain it? 
that we have to do good deeds and things like that. And then after we've done so many good deeds, God credits that to us and says, okay, now you can have your salvation. Now you can enter into heaven. Is he teaching a works righteousness here? Is that what Paul's saying? Well, let's clear this up by first saying what Paul is not saying. Okay, we want to identify first what Paul is not saying. The first thing Paul's not saying here is that you need to work to get your salvation, that you need to work to get your salvation. Paul is not saying that. We know over in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul himself writes, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, he says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, not by works, not by your good deeds, not by your own merit, not by your philanthropy, not by the good things that you bring to, to bear, but rather, he says, it is a gift of God, it's not of your own doing. Verse 9, he says, it's not a result of works. In other words, you didn't earn it, you didn't buy it, you didn't work to obtain it, he says, so that no one may boast. And so what we're doing here is we're examining Scripture with Scripture, right? We've taken Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, and we've taken Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, and we've held those two side by side, and we've said, well, if Paul's saying that you can't earn your salvation, you can't work to obtain it in Ephesians chapter 2, then he must be saying something different than what appears on the surface here in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. You follow me? Right? That's just comparing Scripture with Scripture, because otherwise, Paul's contradicting himself. Otherwise, Scripture's contradicting himself, and we don't see that. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul says, God saved us not because of works done by us. God saved us not because of works done by us, he says, in our own righteousness, but according to his mercy. So again, that verse written by Paul, who also writes the letter to the Philippians, same brain, penned these, both of these words, teaches that our salvation was God's effort, not our own. So first of all, when Paul says, Philippians 2 and verse 12, that we are to work out our salvation, he cannot mean that we are to earn our way to heaven. Following? You already fell asleep. Too early for that. Second of all, we know that it cannot mean that you are to work to keep your salvation. Not only does it mean that you're not supposed to work to get it, but that's also that you're not supposed to work to keep it. That's not what he means. Because the same Bible says, John chapter 6 and verse 47, from the words of Jesus, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. 1 John chapter 5 verse 13 tells us that we may know for sure that we have eternal life. So we're saved by faith, putting our trust in what Jesus accomplished on the cross on our behalf. We're saved by faith. But we also live the Christian life. We keep that salvation by faith, right? You don't get saved by faith and live by works. You don't get come into a relationship with Jesus and have your place in heaven provided for you by putting your faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross. But then you live out the Christian life by your own merit, by your own resources. Follow me? You're saved by faith and you live by faith. All right, so that's this idea. So whatever Paul's saying, he's not saying that you have to work to get your salvation, and he's not saying that you have to work to keep your salvation. So then what is he saying, right? Well, this word that we translate here, to work, comes from the Greek term, and it literally means to complete something, to work something through to its completion. That is to follow the logical course of whatever it is that you have to its fulfillment, to its logical conclusion, something you've already obtained following it through to maturity. 
to translate something that you have into action, to bring it to full maturity. And what does that look like? It looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. It looks like the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. Right? It looks like Christ's likeness. What did Christ, what was, you know, you say, what was it like to interact with Jesus when he, he was here on this earth? It looked, felt like you're interacting with love. Felt like you're interacting with peace. Felt like you're interacting with gentleness, kindness, self-control. All those fruits of the Spirit were all born up in Jesus' life to full maturity. And so that's what Paul's saying here. Is look, take this thing, the salvation that you've been giving, that you've acquired by faith, by putting your faith in Jesus, and then live that out to its completion, to its maturity, to become Christ-like. And we know that doesn't happen overnight, right? It is a process. Amen? It is a process. And so the rest of the Christian life is us working through those details. It's our increasing our holiness and our integrity and our honesty and our industry and our love and our joy and our peace and our patience and our gentleness and our self-control, becoming more and more like Jesus so that when people interact with us, they say, what was it like to talk to that guy, Gordon? Well, you know, aside from the rough edges, it felt like peace. It felt like gentleness what I was interacting with. And so it's taking the salvation that we've been given by faith and working it out to its logical conclusion, becoming Christ-like. That's what Paul's talking about here, that there's this progression in the Christian life. And in order for that progress to take place, there's some responsibility on us that we have to work at it. It's like an athlete, right? You see the guys at the University of Georgia, they get out there on the field, they knock heads with one another, they're running over some guy from Louisiana Monroe, although not this year. Right? But they're out there just, you know, just giving it to one another, and they're these great athletes. Well, they didn't become great athletes by walking in the weight room and looking at the weights. They had to pick things up every once in a while. Like, I go over and pick up my five-pound dumbbells, and I work out, and, you know. And, uh, you know, they didn't get in shape by looking at the treadmill. They didn't get in shape by thinking about going to practice. They got in shape because they got out on the field, they got in the weight room, they engaged those things. And they got their body into shape. And so it's the same idea here is that we don't get into shape. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying work out your salvation. Follow it along to its logical conclusion. Human diligence. Our part in the process. We have to put some energy into this. That's what Paul's talking about here. He says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Who did he say is supposed to work on this? Who is he asking to get engaged and to do this? Is he saying that God needs to get engaged and to do this in you? No, he says, you work out your salvation. Take this thing that you've been given and work on it. Put some energy into it. Follow it to its completion. Paul is saying the believer has to take initiative. The believer has, to get, has got to take an active role. He's saying there's no room for a believer to be dormant in their faith, to take a back seat in the process of Christian maturity. He's saying if you do that, you won't be able to take the field and produce anything. Be a wimpy team, right? We have to put some energy behind it. Now, the Word of God is full of exhortations to this regard. For example, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6 says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame. So that's an activity on our part. Uh, the gift of God which is now in you. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 18, Paul exhorts Timothy to wage the good warfare. In some other translations it says to fight 
the good fight. He's telling Timothy, look, you got to take up arms. you got to get engaged. you got to become a part of this, put some energy into it. This is warfare. I mean, in the army, soldiers that uh, t- are they're passive, they don't last very long. Right? They're out there wad- dawdling around in the middle of a battlefield, and they don't last very long. How about Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12 that says, Therefore, lift your tired and drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Friends, that is a call to action. Paul says, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. I put some energy behind this so that I can obtain the goal to make it my own. Paul says, I've got to put some energy into it. I've got to initiate and sustain activity in this area I just can't let my prayer life go to pot and expect that I'll sustain the same level of intimacy with Christ as when I was praying every day. Make sense? You fell asleep again? All right, makes sense to me. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. God is constantly warning us in the scriptures about becoming lazy and nonchalant in our Christian walk. You know, I look back at great Christian leaders, and when there was a failing in their life, almost without exception, almost without exception, it was that they had let go of some of the discipline in their life. They had begun to let go of some of the discipline of prayer, of spending time in God's Word. They had allowed the things of the world to creep into their heart, to creep into their mind, and it opened up a void. Friends, we dare not become, as one commentator said, spiritual pearl harbors who are warned but not ready. And that's the real danger. God reiterates that call to diligence right here in verse 12 when he says to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Actually, that's the stress of the verse, that last little part of the phrase. It really should read, if you're thinking about it more appropriately, it doesn't read as well in the English language, but it should say, with fear and trembling, work out your salvation. And what this reveals is that we ought to have a seriousness in our approach to the Christian life. You say, well, does that mean that God wants us to not have any joy? No. Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit, friends. God wants for us to have joy. He doesn't want us to always be walking around in fear and trembling. That's not the idea here. Idea here. Did I just say idea? I think I did. We are really falling apart here. God doesn't want us walking around with sour faces. However, God does want us and wants is a seriousness about our Christian lives. And the opposite of that would be flippancy, taking these Christian imperatives as frivolous. No one likes an employee who treats their job that way as frivolous, right? And as flippant, right? They wanted them to take it seriously. Same thing here, Paul's trying to say here with fear and trembling. He wants us to take this seriously. This idea of the taking the salvation that we've been given by faith and working it out, putting our own energy into it. That's our human diligence. It's our part. It's not just all on God. That's our part in this process. Putting some energy into it, initiating and following it through to its logical conclusion. So God is encouraging us here to inject some seriousness into our pursuit of the Christian life. You know, there's a time to play, and there's a time to buckle down. And we have to remember who God is, right? That he is holy. Yes, he's loving. Yes, he's merciful. Yes, he's kind. Yes, he's persevering. He's all those wonderful things, but he's also holy. Remember the eternal song of heaven is holy, holy, holy. That's the number one attribute. It's not love, love, love. It's not faithful, faithful, faithful. It's not mercy, mercy, mercy. The hosts of heaven are compelled to sing. He is holy, holy, holy. And so when when the, the writers of Scripture, when the people of Scripture poke their head up through the clouds 
and saw God seated on his throne in heaven. They were shook. They, were tr- they trembled, right? They had this, this healthy fear and trembling within them. And they were struck by God's holiness, by how righteous he was. Now, I know that may not be popular to say, right? To think of God as holy rather than to think of him as this father that's just going to stroke your back and tell you everything's going to be okay, right? But he is, and he is all those things, but he's also holiness, and that holiness demands a seriousness on our part. Now, there's another reason why we should maintain a sense of sobriety and seriousness, and that is because there really is a war going on around us. Lest we be naive and not think that the devil is real and that the demons that he controls and orders are real and that they're shooting real live bullets that really do destroy and wreck people's lives. Friends, we are in a war, and all you have to do is work with people whose lives are coming apart at the seams, people who are distraught, people who are at the end of the rope, and you realize that Satan has shot them down, and you soon realize that Satan is not playing games. He's playing for keeps. Friends, we need to take this seriously. There needs to be some sobriety about our approach to the Lord. No soldier in his right mind would enter into battle without some measure of fear and trembling, and we dare not enter into this war without it as well. And so there needs to be a holy fear in our lives, a fear of offending a holy God, a fear of disobeying a righteous Father, a fear of grieving Almighty God, not that a fear, not a fear that comes because God is brutal or that he's cruel or that he's unkind. That is not our God but rather a fear that comes from our respect and our reverence, or why we stand for the word of God, right? Our respect and our reverence for him. The same kind of fear that gripped the Israelites when God spoke to them from Mount Sinai. And they said, whoa, 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 Moses, you go up there and talk to him. We don't want to hear from him anymore. We can't handle that. We want to worship him. We love him, but we don't want to get that kind of close to him because he's so awesome. And so the kind of reverence and a recognition that God is awesome. Now, those of us who have had good fathers, we know what this is about, right? However, not all of us did. And if we didn't have a good father, we, God can heal those wounds and fill those voids. But if you did have a righteous father, well, then you know what this is about. I had a terrific father. Many of you have met my dad. He was a loving father, a tender-hearted father, but I was also afraid of him. I was. Now, he's not even here today, so I can say that about him. <laughs> I was scared of him. Um, I remember one time I decided I was going to go deer hunting my senior year of high school. I had some buddies that were into deer hunting, and we back in Delaware, you didn't get to shoot. Uh, it was flat ground, so you couldn't shoot rifles, so you had to go out with a shotgun. So I'm out there with a shotgun in the woods at like 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm supposed to be at school, right? It's the first day of deer season. Well, I didn't know. I'm skipping school, right? I'm going to write my dad's name down. Oh, Dad, sorry about that. I'm going to write his name down and show up at school later that day with my, with my excuse for being gone. Well, um, so I spent the whole morning out deer hunting with some of my buddies, and we were running through the woods and chasing up deer and shooting at them. And then, so we came in after lunch, and I walked in the building, and I had my excuse there, and I had my dad's signature written on it, and I handed it to the secretary lady uh, at the admissions office. She said, are you Gordon Griffin? I said, yes, ma'am, I am. She said, well, we called your father. Didn't know where you were today. See, I didn't know that the first day of deer season, they called everybody's parents that weren't at school. Whoops. And uh, she said, he doesn't know where you are either. He's on his way back to your house right now. Oh. 
So I went back out to the parking lot, got in my car, drove home, and sat with fear and trembling, <laughs> waiting for my dad to come home, and I cured me of going deer hunting, you know, uh, during school hours. But in any case, I had a healthy fear, and it was a good kind of fear, and it brought discipline into my life, and it brought sobriety into my life. And it's something that we need when we recognize that we serve this God who when the people poke their heads up through the clouds of heaven and see him seated on his throne, they, they cry out, he's holy, he's holy. And they fall to their knees, their, their knees are knocking, they're trembling. They want to worship him, they're compelled to do that. I mean, those poor, those angels up there, I'm not poor angels, but those angels up in heaven, I mean, they got to get tired of singing that song, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It just keeps going on and on, and they get a little tired, and then they look down, and they say, oh, okay, holy, 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 right? That's just the way God is. He's awesome. And so we need to recognize who it is, this God that we serve, that we love, and have that serve as that sobriety in our lives. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? And then he lists off about three or four things, and the first one of those things he says is that you fear the Lord. You know, the parting advice of Moses to the people of Israel was to fear the Lord. The parting advice of Joshua to the nation of Israel as he was about to pass from them was to fear the Lord. The parting advice of the great prophet Samuel to the nation of Israel as he was leaving them was to fear the Lord. The great advice of David to his son Solomon as he was about to hand over the reins of the kingdom to him was, Solomon, of everything else that I've taught you, remember this one thing to fear the Lord. I suppose I could sum it all up with this one verse, Deuteronomy 5 and verse 29. The Lord is speaking and he says, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep my commandments that, I might, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Friends, it is my estimation that in every Christian life, the thing that leads to diligence to us continuing to inject energy, for us continuing to, to initiate, to worship this God, to know this God, to keep our lives uh, in line with this God. I don't know of anything else that does that better than a healthy fear of God. Why should I be diligent? Why should I seek to live a holy life? Why should I refrain from sin? Because of the fear of God. Because I know that God disciplines his children, because I know that God will discipline me, if I don't, friends, that is a healthy deterrent against sin in my life. And it's a good thing to keep in view. When we lose the fear of God, sin and foolishness will run rampant in our lives. And we're seeing that happen in our land. The psalmist David describes the sins of a nation this way. Psalm 36 and verse 1, he says, talking about the sins of the nation, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, God is not playing games. He loves us. God is not going to allow us to blatantly live however we want to live without impunity. And yet it all starts with a little lack of carelessness. It all starts with a little lack of, well, maybe not today. And then tomorrow, well, I'll get to that tomorrow. And we begin to peel back and pull back from the energy that, from the initiation that we should be injecting into that relationship with him, pulling back from our human diligence. And it begins to unravel in our life. Now, I know that so far this has been a real downer. <laughs> right? I mean, to be quite honestly, we're talking about God's holiness, and we're going to fear him and Gordon's deer hunting, and, you know. So let's stop for a moment and let's ask our most important question because we want to lift our spirits back up, okay? So our most important question is the question we ask every week around here. 
What difference does all this make to my life? I say, yeah, Gordon, because I had a father who was cruel. I had a father who was oppressive. He used fear to intimidate, to control. He used fear to wreck our lives. So, I mean, what difference does any of this make to me? Well, verse 13 gives us the other side of the coin, okay? We talked about human diligence. That's our part and what God expects of us. But now verse 13, God's saying, hey, look, here's what I'm going to inject. Here's what I'm going to bring to the table. Here's what I'm going to do for you. So take a look at verse 13 with me. Um, It says, let's take a look, verse 13. Here comes the encouragement. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In verse 12, God told us that we need to be diligent, that we need to inject some energy. In verse 12, God told us that he wants for us to be careful about our behavior. But if all God did was to say, I want for you to do this, and I want for you to do that, and you need to live this way, then he'd be a terrible God and a pretty lousy father. But God says, look, I'm not just leaving you to your own devices. I'm going to come in, and I'm going to take part in you living out this thing called the Christian life. And so he says there in verse 13, um, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It addresses not, or first of all, the problem there of I don't want to, right? Um, and it addresses also the problem of I can't. You see, because I really don't want to be holy. And I really don't, deep down, because of my sinful nature, want to live righteously. And I don't want to put the needs of other people ahead of my own. I want to think about myself. I want to put myself first. That's my instinct. That's my nature. It wants to do those things. I really don't want to exert myself spiritually. I really don't want to spend that time in prayer with him each day. I really don't want to be patient. I really don't want to be forgiving. I don't want to be gentle. I'm not interested in being kind. And quite honestly, self-control, you know, maybe I have it sometimes, maybe I don't. And so this is kind of where we're living. In other words, how am I going to work out my salvation to bring it to completion when I really don't want to do those things? Well, God has a solution to that, and there's a second problem, the problem of I can't. I mean, my passions run so deep that if I'm left to myself, I couldn't do it. Well, fine. God's got a solution to that as well. Verse 13 says, for God works in us. God works in us us. And this will cause us to do two things. Um, It will cause us both to will and to work for his good pleasure, or as the NIV says, to will and to do his good pleasure. God solves both of the problems that we have there, both our will, our, our desire to do it. He says, I'll come in and solve that problem. I'll cause you to want to spend time with me. I will cause you to want to live a holy life. I'll put that passion inside of you. Where it doesn't exist, I'll make it exist. God says, I'll do that. I'll, I'll solve the problem of your will. Ezekiel chapter 36, God says, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you, listen to that, God says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Isn't that exciting? Third time today. It's exciting to me to think that God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to cause you 
to want to walk in my ways. When you're not feeling like it, I'll come in there. I'll swoop in there by my Holy Spirit working inside of you, and I'll make that a reality. Friends, if God is not willing to help us to work out my own salvation, to see it to its completion, then friends, I'd be left to my own devices, and I know that I would fall away. And if you're here this morning and you're excited about some of these things that I'm sharing here today, friends, you want to obey God. You aspire to do more with your life. You aspire to serve others. When you fall short, you're grieved in your heart because of that. Guess what, friends? You know where that came from? It came from God working in you. That's where that desire came from. It didn't just pop up. That was God working inside of you, calling you to this way of life, putting that passion inside of you. So here in verse 13, we see divine enablement. As that God's not just saying, look, here's how I want you to live, have at it. It's God saying, here's how I want you to live, and I'm going to walk into this situation with you. I'm going to give you this heart of flesh. I'm going to change you on the inside. I'm going to put passions inside of you for my holiness and for fearing me and for living a godly life. God working in you both to will and to work or to do his good pleasure. Friends, this is What's so exciting about the Christian life that it doesn't depend on you. That it's almighty God working inside of you to bring about this kind of life. And you and I, we're just cooperating with him. It's God who's going to see it through. What was it Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 promised? It says, I am sure of this, that he, God, this is Paul speaking here, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion. Or as the old NIV, I memorized it years ago, said, will be faithful to complete it. He'll bring it through to its natural, logical conclusion. He'll take this salvation by faith that you've now obtained by putting your trust in Jesus and the work he accomplished on the cross, and God will be faithful to walk that thing through to its logical conclusion, to Christ's likeness. God promises you that. Friends, would you do me a favor this week? Would you take Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, jot it down on a 3 by 5 card, pop it in your phone, perhaps, let it pop up each day as a reminder to you, and just allow that promise from God to flood your heart, to flood your soul each day, that he who began a good work in you, started back here at your salvation, will be faithful to complete it. God working in us. Friends, this has always been one of my favorite verses, going back to my childhood, that God is going to do it, that he's not going to give up on me, that God will by his power and might bring this good work that he began Remember, we're saved by grace through faith, not of our own works. It is the gift of God. And then we can praise God, add Philippians 1 and verse 6. He will be faithful to complete it. It started by faith. It's lived out by faith and empowered by his spirit. Friends, don't ever let that grow stale. Don't ever cease to stand in awe and wonder of that great promise in Philippians 1 and verse 6, that the God of the universe who holds the stars in his hand will work in you. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, we just thank you so much for speaking to us today from your word. It's rich 
it's true, it's food for our soul. Lord, lead us to a deeper walk with you. Impassion us. And when your spirit's speaking, Lord, may we listen. May we soften our hearts, open up our ears, open up our spiritual eyes, God. And we might be submitted, listening, participating with you. Lord, may we also be diligent to do our part, to initiate, to put some energy into this relationship with you. God, it, 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 we won't get in shape by just walking around the training facility. We've got to inject some time and some energy. Lord, as we now come to gather around this table, being reminded of your shed blood and of your broken body, we are so grateful, we are so thankful, Jesus, that you reached out to us, that you did for us what we were unable to do for ourselves, to initiate a relationship with you. Thank you for that. Lord, speak to us in the quiet moments of communion as we share these elements together. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. We invite you to share in the communion elements. Those are there in the chair in front of you. And then we'll close with a uh, song here in just a few moments. Father's arms are open. 